Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you again this week. Welcome back, folks. Another Friday night in the big town. I should turn down the music while I talk. That's how this works. Uh, I misspoke in our last episode, probably our last two episodes, where I said we would have an, uh, an episode last week and I misread the calendar. That episode is actually today, right now. We have a very special guest. We have Professor James Davenport, who is the Associate Dean for Social Sciences at Rose State College here in Oklahoma City. Uh, or is it actually in Oklahoma City? It Technically, it's Midwest City. Midwest City. Yeah. In the Oklahoma City metro area. Yes. Uh, well, Professor Davenport, thank you for joining me today. I am excited to be here. Big fan of your podcast and uh, the work that you do. So, Well, thank you. Uh, it was an honor to uh, get invited. Yeah. Well, yeah. we had your uh, compatriot, uh, Emily Stacy yes. on the show a while back. And uh, I know you and I have had a chance to connect several times. And um, and you and Emily have a, a podcast as well. Yes. Not my generation. Right. And uh, – we uh, it, it's a very interesting take on pol- politics. Uh, we look at national, international, state, and local stuff, but it's kind of with a generational take. So Emily is uh, millennial, right? I am Gen X, and so we kind of look at it from those different perspectives as well as younger Gen Z, yeah. boomers, that kind of thing. Right. So it's kind of fun. That's great. I am. Uh, I was born in March of eighty one, so I am. I think 81 is like the line, right? So I'm an elder millennial. Uh, yes. In yes. that um, – You know the nickname. Emily has told you the nickname that you guys have, right? The Zennials? Is no, 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 no. No, no. What's the, the – you're, you're a geriatric millennial. Oh, that's right. I <laughs> love to uh, use that with her. She, uh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, she, she and I aren't that far <laughs> apart in age, I don't think. Um that's great. I've uh, listened to a couple of episodes of your show, and it's always enjoyable. You guys are both enjoyable. I hope our listeners find you enjoyable as well. I hope so too. I hope they uh, don't get bored or you know get upset at you for inviting a, you know a raving libertarian onto your show. <laughs> you, you never know what will will happen. But that's you know. exciting. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I was thinking about that. I don't know that we we have had a libertarian on the show before. I I feel like we must have at some point. Um, but we try to present all right. perspectives here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I have a number of friends who are registered libertarian and have run for office under that banner, and we align on some things. Uh, Rank yeah. choice voting is one. Uh, we don't align on some other things. Um, that's what it means to participate in civic life, right? It it is, and uh, just as far as uh, so your your audience understands is there's actually different variations of libertarians out there as well. And I'm going to- Just like there are the two major parties. Exactly. I'm going to put them in two kind of two camps here. You have kind of the, um, uh, what has been termed not too complimentary, but kind of the, the libertarian brutalist. So this would be the the folks from the Ian Rand school of libertarians. Okay. okay yep. but, uh, I get mine, you get yours, leave me alone. I should never have to support any government program you know, taxation is theft, right. all of that kind of right, thing. Right, right. Ron Swanson, shut the government down. Right. <laughs> uh, and then uh, there is what uh, has come to be called the uh, bleeding heart libertarians, which uh, are not just focused on on freedom of the individual, but also uh, take seriously issues of justice, right? Uh, okay. And and say, how can we address? They don't deny some of the things that you see denied in some of the libertarian or even conservative circles oh, as okay. being important issues right. and, and how do we grapple with those, right? right. Uh, and so uh, if you were to categorize me in one of those two, I'm probably more of the bleeding heart libertarian than right. I am the... Uh, and if people want to know more about that, there's a... a a uh, blog that it's not active anymore, but it's still up. It's called bleedingheartlibertarianism.com, I think. And oh. they can go and check it out. Yeah. How interesting. I um, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. I'm not, probably not, like most folks, not as familiar with the nuances of the Libertarian Party as I am the two major parties. Mm-hmm. And honestly, as I am with independence, um, which is where I am, my current alignment is. Um, although... I in twenty two ish maybe twenty twenty, there was a bit of a shift that occurred in the National Libertarian Party, yes, right? The, yes. the Mises Caucus right. folks so, came in. So and, these are going to be more of the hard kind hard of uh, uh, libertarians. I, I think you would say they have a more of a fusion, and this has been kind of the 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 
I don't want to say a civil war, but kind of this back and forth within the Libertarian Party over the last few years is there are some who have said, look, we have been had this kind of overlapping uh, relationship with conservatives and uh, focused on that and not focused on. And this all came out of really kind of the Cold War uh, era type of thing. And so uh, libertarians made their common cause with, with conservatives because they were both against socialism. Uh, and then, uh, but more recently, within the last couple of decades, uh, there have been some that saying, look, that relationship is not as productive as everybody thought it would be. Uh, and maybe we should be more open to looking where we have overlap with those on the left. And oh, so yeah. – uh, there's that's kind of been a rising thing, but there's been this back and forth. And right now, at least as far as the official party is concerned, it's more of those those folks who are still aligned with more with conservatism that are running the show. Interesting. I was uh, last year, I think I was on a panel with Angela McArdle, who's okay. the national chairwoman for the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party now, mm-hmm. who's kind of part of this group. Um, and the the panel was about working together and like building bridges uh, and. There were some of my co-pan lists when they got the list that were like, I'm not sure how this is going to go. And, of course, it went fine. It was um, – she was very polite. and right. But it was interesting hearing different perspectives. And that was really the catalyst for me to, like, do some research about, you know, who my co-panelists were going to be and what sure. this conversation might, might be like. Uh, and I think a lot of people probably assume that the Libertarian Party is a – flank of the Republican Party, but that's right. not, entirely not, not entirely true. Yeah. True. Um, you do have people moving who sometimes move back and forth. Um, but interestingly enough, on some of the major, especially social issues of the last couple of decades, uh, libertarians have been much more aligned with those more of the progressive stripes. So you think of same-sex marriage, you think of uh, drug legalization, uh, criminal justice reform. Libertarians have been much more aligned with uh, those on the left on those issues than they have been on the right. Right. That's interesting. And things like same-sex marriage, right? Like if the, I don't know, if the generic default position of a member of the Libertarian Party is government, leave me alone, Mm -hmm. then it makes sense for the government to not be involved in saying who can marry who, right? Right. Right. So that's where the alignment comes from. Exactly. It's that notion that, uh, as I like to try to explain it to people, you know, libertarians are about trying to maximize individual decision-making and as opposed to collective decision-making. And so when you think of government in terms of who gets to make decisions for whom, uh, that question about who gets to marry, libertarians would say, well, that should be a question left to individuals, right. not to uh, some collective body of others uh, who who really don't have any kind of consequences that they pay if they get it wrong. Right, right. So can I not? I'm not trying to get you to speak for libertarians writ large, but um, I'm curious now about some other issues like sure. like book bans that we hear mm-hmm. a lot about in the mm-hmm. news right now. My my hunch or suspicion would be let people read the books they want to read, but if I'm wrong, tell me so. No, that that very much would be a, in, in, a, from a libertarian perspective. Is again, the government should not be about. Uh, deciding for you what it is that you want to read or right. listen to or uh, consume in some other way, right? right. That uh, that should be unless what you're doing causes direct harm to another person, uh, that the government has no business in interfering with that. Right. And so uh, I think libertarians would be much, much less inclined. Now, you get into this whole thing of, well— uh, and this is where, you know, again, there can be just some nuance, but, well, libraries are public institutions, so they're automatically government, so somebody's going to decide who's going to do what. Oh, right. But but by and large, libertarians are going to say, just let people read what they want to read. <laughs> right. right. Which seems Don't like a them. reasonable position to me. <laughs> uh, well, and, you know, related to that, we, we had um, uh, Dr. Reverend Shannon Fleck on the show yes. a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Uh, and she and I are, are planning a follow-up episode listeners i know some of you have, have have clamored for more you'll have plenty more don't worry um we just have to find time and we talked a lot about the separation of church and state mm-hmm, right and mm-hmm. so where do libertarians fall so libertarians that? are very much in in that camp of uh there should be a clear line of distinction between what is church what is state uh and they should stay out of each other's business for the most part right um where i get so you know when i talk about these things i, I 
politically, I come from a libertarian perspective, a distinct type of libertarian perspective, but I'm also a political scientist, so I bring that hat sure. to the table. Yeah, yeah. I'm a person of faith, and so I bring that background to the table. as well. So I, And these things don't all fit nice and neatly with each other all of the time, and right. so I have to kind of grapple with things as well as how does this fit within these other things that are also me uh, in, in dealing with this, but... Uh, but by and large, I still come back to, for the most part, in most situations, people should be able to work things out amongst themselves and not have some third party impose its own decision on what they should or shouldn't do, how they should do it, that kind of thing. Again, uh, with the uh, it's kind of like John Stuart Mill, the harm principle. As long as you're not causing direct harm to somebody else, uh, you should be able to engage in, in that. Right. That's really interesting. You know, I think when it comes to that particular issue of, of church and state, um, particularly where it connects with um, schools, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of, right now, I think in here in Oklahoma, I have lots of conversations of, well, what is the role of the state government or the state board of education versus mm-hmm. local control at the local, like, right. local school board level or even the classroom teacher level? So, you know, um, uh, Superintendent Walters has proposed some rules uh, that a lot of folks are kind of taken aback by. There's bills about requiring the Ten Commandments to be displayed in every school and classroom. And I, I'm certain that there are teachers out there that are thinking, no way. Like, I work really hard. I've been a teacher for 25 years. My classroom mm-hmm. is a safe space for learning and exploration. And having anything in there is going to color that in a way that 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 teacher might feel is um, antithetical to their learning process. Or the local school board might say, listen, man, like we disagree with this. We have a lot of non-Christian learners in this sure. district. Sure. Why would we require this? We're not a religious school, right? If it's a right. church-affiliated school, fine, of, of whatever it is. And so I think um, – that issue of of just we'll just say in general local control versus top down state enforced policy to me is a fascinating dynamic in this state in particular that is dominated by conservatives who historically have been the party of small government mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. Um, and now that we're debating on well we got it small enough but now we want to find new ways to to be big government in a way that we like right is a really it's like a, a bit of a cognitive dissonance for me, I think, well, as a voter. Well, there, there's an interesting strain working its way through conservatism right now that has, by and large, abandoned the limited government, small government kind of mind frame, right? And have uh, uh, have decided that, no, in fact— by, by being limited government, by st- keeping a hands off, we've let these progressives just run amok and ruin everything. And so we're going to have to impose things on people because that's the only way it's going to get done. Uh, and, and you're seeing that more and more. And you see this most particularly in our state in issues relating to abortion, in re- issues relating to public display of religion, these kinds of things where you have conservatives who all of a sudden had for decades been talking about local control in, in school boards or uh, uh, limiting the government's ability to to impose itself on people in various ways, now all of a sudden very much in favor of that. And so it's what it's an interesting transition to watch this. And whether or not that constitutes, that strain constitutes a majority of uh, thinking of people who identify as conservatives or not, I'm not clear about that, but it is certainly a, a very prominent strain that has emerged in the last decade or so. Uh, it has some uh, various uh, writers uh, who have articulated this kind of notion that, no, we need to use state power to accomplish our vision of the good life, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's been interesting to watch that emerge uh, and then see it play out in, in local politics. And, uh, you know, again, I'm not Catholic, but there's a Catholic principle called the principle of subsidiarity, which basically is decisions should be made at the lowest level possible by the people who are going to be most directly impacted by that decision. Sure. Uh, and I think that's a really good principle to use on almost everything. Uh, and uh, when it comes to schools, I'm going to trust my local school board 
uh, my the principal of my child's school or or, or uh, the school teacher. I'm going to trust them a lot more to know what should be happening in that school than I'm going to trust somebody out at 23rd and Lincoln right. to figure that out or in the State Department of Education even, right? Uh, those folks know what the needs of their students are, uh, and they've been trained in how to address those needs. Right. And so I think uh, that is a good principle to hold tightly to, even if we, let's not pretend like education, whether we're talking about K through 12 or higher ed, let's not pretend like there's no problems there. Um, But even when we're saying, how do we address these problems? I'd much rather have local decisions guiding that than top-down decisions from the state legislature or the Department of Education. Right. Especially things that um, have such a personal impact. Right. 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 I mean, because, yeah, there's no way the state board can possibly know what's happening in all of our 400-odd school districts, right? right? Like if you're in right. Idabel or Grove or Guymen or anywhere, like there's – what the needs are of that community are largely only known to that community. And you might have the opportunity to speak up or to advocate for something, but to make very – specific instructions down mm-hmm. to the, the local level seems to me as um, even someone who believes government can be a force for good, right? That like, sure, maybe that's uh, not the right entity to be making some of those decisions. Well, and as I try to tell my students in my classes all the time, you know, we talk about the name of my course, one of the courses I teach, American Federal Government, but that's really not correct. It should be American Federal Governments mm. because we have tons of governments, right? right? Uh, we have a national state and then all sorts of local governments. Uh, and so anytime someone says, well, the government ought to do this, well, the next question should be, which one? Right, right. Which one is best suited to handle that issue? Yeah. Uh, and so often we don't even ask that question. Right. Right. That's um – that's exactly right, and I'm reminded of that on weeks like this. As, as we were talking before we started recording, earlier this week I was at a conference for my national organization, which is the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers, and we had we had folks from 29 states that were there, and so we had at least 29 different perspectives on how government works, either mm-hmm. like the reality of some states have ballot initiative processes. Some states don't. Some can. Some that do can only do statutory changes. Some, like us, can do constitutional amendments. Mm-hmm. All the requirements are different. Uh, we talked about local campaigns, legislative campaigns, statewide efforts, coalition building with all these different verticals of groups. And I walked away thinking, America is amazingly diverse, not just in its people, but in its structures. That's exactly right. And for any of us to believe that there is one best way to do everything, like we have to eat some humble pie and recognize that we, that's probably not the case, right? Right. There's not, there's not one way to be an American that is entirely superior in every way, especially when it comes to like how we govern ourselves. Um, There are some systems that are more mm, fertile (laughs) for, (laughs) for things to go poorly. Right. I mean, as, as one example, Oklahoma's, um, system of county commissioners is has kind of widely been pointed to as like, oh, well, systems like this are prone to corruption, as we saw in the mm-hmm. 70s, you mm-hmm. know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, this enormous uh, largest corruption, political corruption scandal in American history. And the investigator from that has said, well, Oklahoma and states like it that have this same system, like the potentiality is there that things are going to go south if you get the wrong people sure. in office. yeah. And I mean, I think we've seen or struggled with over the last, you know, 30-ish years, right, that we've had several presidents who have been elected by a minority of voters of the popular vote. Um, But we have this system called the Electoral College that was set up for one purpose and maybe plays out in a different way sometimes. And we have to really struggle with, well, is this the right thing to do? And even today, uh, I was in a meeting with some local advocates here and someone made the really great point that we want to change how things are sure, but we need to make sure we don't change them in a way that it is bad in the other direction in 10 or 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. things, political winds will shift. What happens then? And then are we, have we put ourselves in a position where we have to advocate for the alternative point just because 
it's a partisan issue. Right. I was like, oh, right. that's good thinking, right? Yeah. We need to be proactive and not always just reactive. The, the, the law of unintended consequences shows up often and uh, in very unexpected ways. And, uh, and so I, you know, I have class, when I'm teaching about the Constitution, I talk about the Electoral College and describe how it emerged, what it, what it was for, how it was, what it was expected to do, and then how it functions today. Um, you know, and I, you get a lot of folks who, well, we just need to get rid of the Electoral College. Just get rid of it, right? right? Uh, and just let the people vote. And so my response to that is Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Right. Because that's what democracy has given. The Electoral College did not give us that choice. Right, right. Democratic votes, right? right? Votes of the people are who forced that choice on us. And so uh, uh, do I think the Electoral College functions in a way that is helpful? Not really. Uh, <laughs> would I like to see some alteration? I would love for the Electoral College to become like the hiring committee for the chief executive. That's how I would like to think of it. Is, sure. Uh, when when uh, companies are hiring, when we hire for professors, mm-hmm. we don't have one person just sitting there interviewing it. We have a hiring committee that are designated, and they're going to make that decision uh, and that recommendation and go forward. I would love for the Electoral College to function in that manner uh, as opposed to how it does, basically just rubber stamps whatever happens right. in, in each state. Right. right? Which is, I think— my this is my interpretation of what the framers wanted is right. something like that, right? right? Where we, I mean, arguably they were trying to pick like the elites to come sure. together to nope, do nope. it. That's right. I mean, yeah. that's historically accurate, right? Um, but I do think it was designed to be like, well, okay, we need to make sure that we're moving the country in the right direction. Mm-hmm. We need these people who, in their belief, might be better equipped to make it than the masses. Um, but that is certainly not always the case either. That, that's true. That's true. And I, I, I will. We can come back to this, but I'll take issue with the idea that just Democratic votes gave us Donald Trump and Joe Biden, because I I would argue that there's some structural things with how we do primaries that lead us towards that. That argument is absolutely fair, right? And that could, (laughs) uh, you know, that could lead us down to the whole rabbit hole of ranked choice voting or open primaries, these kinds of things. Uh, But you are correct, right? The way the way we design a system will largely determine the outcomes that that system produces, right? right? Uh, And and we certainly can look at that. Um, uh, I also would love to get away from the states just delegating the selection of electors to the parties. I think that's a, that, that is inherently problematic for a whole variety of reasons. But uh, the first one is that it just – it ensures that the electoral vote from any given state is not going to really reflect the vote in that state. Right. Right. Because it, it's not proportional. That's in, correct. Right. In most states. And it's tied to two major parties right. when there are – other parties that and no parties, right? Independent Correct. voters are the largest, fastest growing segment in Oklahoma and in America. And um, in Oklahoma, independents are almost equal in number to Democrats now. And so it's just in like thinking of that way, it's like, well, okay, well, twenty five percent of the people are have opted out of both parties, right. or all three parties. Libertarians are recognized party, and and we don't ever talk about them in a in the normal discussion, right? Everything's. Correct. On a binary, right, left, mm-hmm. R, D, mm-hmm. red, blue, when there are just as many others that aren't red or blue, um, and they, yeah, just aren't in the conversation at all. Right. We leave them out, so so to speak. Uh, and and I think that's, you know, we see that in, in the way the House of Representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives is constructed and the way redistricting happens there uh, to where... Uh, that body, I don't think anybody can argue, is fully representative of the diversity of the population. And I don't just mean demographic diversity like uh, uh, race or gender or such, but even ideological diversity. Right. That that institution is not representative of the nation as a whole. Uh, and uh, some of that has been due to redistricting. Uh, some of it is due to uh, the fact that the parties, the two major parties have found ways within the states to basically lock out anybody else from getting to play in their sandbox. Uh, and and quite frankly, uh, it, it's a little bit due to the fact that we haven't enlarged the size of the House of Representatives for over 100 years. Right. Uh, but our population as a nation has grown more than double right. in that time. So uh, I think, you know, all of those factors go into play about what this should be. And 
I, when I'm looking at things like this, I'm looking from my, my kind of my political scientist hat and saying, okay, how do we design these structures to where if representation is important, how do we make it happen? How do we decide? And these aren't new questions. I mean, they grappled with these in the Constitutional Convention. Right. Who was the nation? Who is this national government going to represent? And how is representation going to play out? All of that. So these aren't new questions, but they're questions that we continuously have to uh, to revisit simply because of the changing nature of our population. Right. Uh, and I think so often we're hesitant to do that. Yeah. That's great. I just finished reading or listening to an audiobook um, by Heather Cox Richardson called okay. Democracy Awakening. Mm-hmm. I believe she's a left-leaning individual based on what I know about her. Uh, the book was excellent and does a great job of, from a, I mean, a historical perspective, kind of tracking trends throughout our history and in breaking down um, some of those uh, uh compromise battles in our history of like states rights versus Mm -hmm. the role of the federal government that I thought were very illustrative and a good reminder for us today of like where we've been as a country, how we resolve these disputes in the past. Mm -hmm. And is that, is that resolution we came to still applicable today? Like we have a hard time as Americans, like saying we were wrong about something, <laughs> and to say like, "Oh, you know what? Maybe we, maybe that's not the best. Maybe, maybe there's a different way of doing this." Right. I mean, yeah. we, you know, part of the deal, the way that we passed the Constitution in the first place, was by getting guys to agree to immediately amend it ten times. Right. right. Where it's like, right. I'll sign it if you change these ten things, and it's like, but we wouldn't agree to put it in the original document. We had to come back right away and do it, and we've, you know, we've um, amended it a couple dozen times, but certainly. Not for a long time. Right. There's some groups now working on, uh, you know, the the Twenty Eighth Amendment uh, is what they like to refer to it as, which is optimistic, right? That they that's can, pretty optimistic. They can be the next one. <laughs> um, but what a bold goal to say, hey, we've got something so fundamentally wrong. And in, in this, in that case, they're talking about campaign finance reform and mm-hmm. Citizens United. But um, anything like that to get a majority of states and a majority of Americans to say, yeah we should change this mm-hmm. um, is like a really tall order. And I think it takes a, a bit of perhaps a bit of humility at the same time. You can't just believe that this is the right thing to do. You have to believe that we were wrong at some point. And that I think is especially right now difficult for Americans well, to do. I think too, sometimes it's not just about being wrong. It's just about Dynamics have changed. Yeah. The way life works today is significantly different than the way life worked 100 or 200 years ago or so, right? Uh, and so what might have worked just fine in 1790 or 1890 might not be good for 2024. Uh, and it's not about, well, they we don't have to come back and say, well, they were wrong. It's just things have changed. Yeah. And, uh, and if you don't have a system that's flexible enough to accommodate that change – and to uh, 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 apply itself to that change, you run into problems. Uh, and I think we see that today in that uh, there's very little that we seem to be able to get done at right. all. Uh, just getting normal legislation out of Congress today is problematic, much less a constitutional amendment of any sort. Yeah. Right. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think sometimes we just need to step back and say, what has changed about our society? I'm probably going to uh, get uh, a lot of my libertarian and very conservative friends upset. But when we think about gun laws, right? Well, maybe 100, 200 years ago when we were largely rural and people weren't running into each other all the time, um, letting people roam around with guns freely wasn't as big an issue. Also, right? the guns have changed a little uh, bit. The guns have changed <laughs> substantially since that time. And so maybe there is a place for greater gun regulation today because of the changing technology of, of gun manufacturing, the more urban lifestyle that we live in. And, and so maybe revisiting that a little bit, uh, that doesn't mean I want to ban guns. I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying, you know, from from just a perspective of do is what we pa- what we thought about this 200 years ago or even 100 years ago does that fit the society that we're living in today right and it seems like there are some people who don't want to have that discussion there are, or at least right. they don't want to think they don't think about that discussion right it's like this is what was written and that's written in stone and that's what we have to right. do 
So you would not consider yourself an originalist in some of these things? Oh, I vacillate back and forth. <laughs> I will be honest. Uh, I don't know that I have a distinct judicial philosophy as far as the Constitution goes. Um, I, by and large, am a big fan of the Constitution. Um, although I writ, uh, wrote a, a column uh, seven or eight years ago arguing that we needed to rewrite it, yeah. that, that it's time to rewrite it, that, it, that what we have now. That doesn't mean... I want to wholesale give up a right. bunch of stuff that's in there, uh, but there are some things that clearly aren't working today, and maybe we need to rethink about how we want to to, to move forward. That's so funny. When I talk about uh, you know a modern day constitutional convention mm-hmm. with people, almost everyone says, "Oh yeah, we should do that," but no one trusts the current people, right? Correct. To like be the ones to do it. It's like Correct. we should do that, but not these guys. Yeah. Um, and of course, the there's not a good a good. Okay, we'll just keep it where it's at then. Well. I I think when people have that reaction, they're actually correct, right? If if I was designing a constitutional convention, one of the one of the limitations I would put on it is no one currently serving in political office can serve in that convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have people who are not embroiled in all the partisan bickering and all the partisan politics that are going on today. We're going to put them to the side. Right. And let people who uh, are not as enmeshed and steeply who have steep uh, commitments to one particular party or one particular ideological perspective come together and work on that. And so I think they're right in that I don't want those people doing this. I don't want them doing it either. Right. uh, but I think you could work around that, right? I think you could put some stipulations on who who got to serve in that. It's really hard. And I mean, the original constitutional convention was not just a happy-go-lucky time, oh, no. right? Like no, it was no, no. very contentious. <laughs> it barely got written, um, much like many group projects. That's that, right. That's <laughs> it, exactly right. It's tough. Um, the the um, and they basically ignored what they were told they were supposed to do there. Right. right? They were right. told, we want you to fix the Articles of Confederation, uh, the system that they were working under at the time. And on day one, they were like, yeah, we're not doing that. Right. right? You, could, you can throw all the Band-Aids and barbed wire and duct tape on those things. They're not going to work. Right. So we're just going to create something new. Yeah. 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 It's, um, there was a great podcast series. Um, I think it's just called Constitutional. And it's by one of the big podcast companies. I forget mm-hmm. who it's by. Um, but they, it's, I don't know, 10 episodes really walking through chronologically um, through the convention. Mm-hmm. And it was, I, I remember doing it while replacing the floor in my wife's previous house. Uh, and I was thinking like how much work it was to tear up and lay down new tile as one person. Mm-hmm. And then listening to like the arduous task of, writing the constitution, defending it, promoting it. I was like, oh, okay, Tile's not so bad. This really <laughs> puts things in perspective here. You don't have nearly as many disagreements over Tile as you might over how the uh, presidency ought to be constructed. That's true, right? I would, yeah. but you can just take it out on the Tile also with a hammer, and that exactly. doesn't work so well in a convention. <laughs> um, James, you had uh, a column last year uh, in Nondoc about incivility and mm-hmm. how the, the title was We Hate Each Other, Growing Incivility Undermines the Values of Our Democracy. And yeah. I feel like we've this conversation's kind of been circling around that. Um, tell us a little bit of what you meant in, in that. Well, uh, Pew Research and then um, a group called More in Common in, in conjunction with the polling firm YouGov have all done some research on how Americans kind of view each other, and especially how Americans who identify as Republicans or Democrats view each other, right? Uh, And in Pew's research, what they found is Republicans really don't like Democrats, and Democrats really don't like Republicans, and that has grown worse over time uh, to where both sides basically see each other as enemies to be defeated, not fellow citizens who they just have disagreements with over public policy, right? right? right. Uh, and then uh, the, the uh, more in common study uh, identified what they call the perception gap. And the perception gap is how much misunderstanding each party has of the other, right? Uh, and they found that, um, that Republicans and Democrats don't really know each other anymore either. Uh, and a lot of this comes from uh, kind of this this uh, segregating that we're doing, right? So there's been a lot of interesting research on how uh, if you look at communities, 
uh, Republicans don't live in the same communities as Democrats. And even if they live in yeah. the same communities, they don't live on the same blocks as each other. Right. Uh, so that, that's very interesting. You have habits of uh, going to different restaurants and going to different types of churches. And so there's really this kind of segregation out. Uh, so we've separated ourselves from one another. Uh, that has caused us to not really know each other. And that has created a bunch of distrust from one another, yeah. in which, uh, which in that kind of environment makes it hard to find any kind of common ground, right? Uh, and what, what really concerned me about the YouGov uh, uh, and More in Common study was some of the things that that we as uh, social scientists, as political scientists, uh, people who are actively engaged in in community activities, some of the things that we tell people they should be doing actually seem to make the problem worse, right? right? Right. So we tell people, hey, get involved. You know, we're all about civic engagement. Get out there. But the people who are most involved have the greatest misunderstanding of the people on the other side, right? right? Uh, we tell people, uh, stay informed. Know, know what's going on. Watch the news. Well, what do we find? The people who watch the news most frequently completely misunderstand the people on the other side. Right. Uh, even education, uh, we, you know, it, it, it can be problematic. And there was an interesting finding in that study that uh, while for Republicans, every level of increased education didn't seem to expand that perception gap, for Democrats, it did so fairly significantly. So uh, from college to graduate degree to a PhD or something, every level you go up, uh, their misunderstanding of Republicans gets significantly higher, hmm. which was very interesting to me. So uh, all of these things that we tell people they should be doing – don't seem to help this problem very much. And so uh, that concerns me as a political scientist because I don't think the answer is don't be engaged, don't be informed, right. and don't get an education. Right. right? That's not the solution right. to this problem. But we have to find ways of, of doing those things in a way that builds bridges, that brings people to the table together, uh, that, that helps them identify common ground, uh, and that they can, we can move forward as a society on. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. We ha and recently we had a, a guest here on the show from Unify America mm -hmm. that is trying to. It's a bridge building organization and trying to do some of that work. She Ariel. came to meet with you. Yeah, she, she was on our podcast too. That's so, right. Yeah, we, uh, but uh, and, and they do great work. Yeah, fantastic work. Uh, uh, organizations like the uh, Bipartisan Policy Center that yep. also tries to bri build bridges across party lines in Congress and such. All of those organizations are really needed right now yeah. because it's just so hard uh, for that to emerge naturally, so to speak. Yeah. 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 They're, um, one of the presentations we had this week at my conference mm -hmm. was from the National Civic League, who they, along with several other organizations, have been compiling this mega database. I've got over 10,000 organizations that are civic related, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them are um, trying to build bridges. There's like kind of that network of the bridging community. There's groups like ours that are working on democratic uh, structural uh, reform. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of different things, uh, civic education, all this stuff. And it was, they are about to sometime in this neck in this year are going to like release it all as a as a data set and all as a map showing the connections between them. And it was fascinating that in the talk to listen to not just how they went about collecting this data, which is just like a lot of hours of people Googling things uh, <laughs> and making phone calls, but in understanding about how they are or how we are contributing to a healthy democracy mm -hmm. overall. And some of the questions in that session from the audience were, okay, like, Maybe there's you know ten thousand organizations working on this, but is that making a difference? Because we see this slide towards mm -hmm. incivility, increased partisan polarization, disconnect between both sides. So if we're all working this hard at doing it, like what are we missing? Like how can we how can we do it better? If if education and tuning in and getting involved is still making us more divided, like what is the solution? And. and if I knew the answer to that, I'd be making a lot more money than I am today. Let me just tell you. But, but let me tell you about why this is why I feel like this is a real problem. Is democracy to be a functioning, legitimate system of government relies on a bunch of stuff that happens below the surface 
to sustain it, right? And a lot of that is simply the ability of people to put aside their their political beliefs and work together on projects. So uh, you you know you think of things like Rotary Club or Lions Clubs or uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs of America or uh, even churches or other nonprofit organizations that people come together and they say we're going to do something in our community. We're not going to worry about each other's politics. We just we see a need, we're going to help with that need, and we're going to get something done. Right. Um, that kind of social cooperation is essential if democracy is going to be viewed as a way to make decisions that is going to, by and large, work for the majority of the folks and not be viewed as a tool of just – uh, a sledgehammer to use on your opponents, right? Right. And so, uh, and I get into this. This is why I am probably not as big a fan as democratic decision making as some others. And I don't mean that. Oh, I want to go to a dictatorship or anything like that. But democratic decision making isn't always the best way of doing certain things. Sure. Depending on a context that, that you're looking at, right? Um, but. For large decisions that are going to be made for an entire population, there's not really a better way that serves the interest of the most people than having some democratic process of doing so, right? right? Um, And uh, for that to be held legitimate, though, people have to be feeling like they can work with each other, and they have to be able to trust the people on the other side, even if the outcome of that, that democratic decision process isn't what they wanted. Right. And when we can't have that kind of social cooperation underneath the surface, it makes viewing democracy as a legitimate way of making decisions much more problematic. Uh, We just see it as, uh, well, on one side, we want to under – we want to – declare that it was not legitimate at all to begin with. Election fraud, all of this kind of stuff. Um, On the other side, sometimes you get this this sense that if we've got 51 votes, we're going to ram whatever we want down your throat, right? That's that's not a healthy democracy either, right? There has to be some respect there for uh, if you've got a sizable majority who's opposed to something, not saying that they should be able to block everything, but you ought to take that into account a little bit more than what I see us doing, especially at the national level. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it, working with people is messy. The majority is not always right. Sometimes, right? Like, there's points in American history where the majority was was absolutely wrong, absolutely wrong. <laughs> um, and and those in those occasions, like the structures we have, are sometimes appreciated sure. more, right? And at least in retrospect. And I think probably more to your point. The thing that I struggle with, and this is me, Andy, not on behalf of, my, of any organization, but a lot of the activity in this in this civic realm, not just not just politics, but civics, is oriented around winning. Yes, yes. Right. Instead of, I don't know, growing, building, just doing it for charitable reasons. And in fact, in your in your non doc article, you gave. Um, kind of like five or six bullet points about the Heterodox Academy and their perspectives. And one of them says, being intellectually charitable, assume the reasonable, informed, and intelligent people may disagree with you. And I think that is, that does feel charitable, right? Like in a way of like, this person, we might disagree, but it doesn't make them less than me. It doesn't make them dumb or it doesn't necessarily even make them wrong. Like we might just disagree on right. something and it's easy if we, you, you and I can discuss our favorite flavors of ice cream. We might not you know, agree that it's bluebell homemade vanilla, which is the <laughs> correct answer, but we, but I'm not going to think like, God, James is such an idiot. Like he's clearly an autocrat. He's some crazy libertarian. He likes mint chocolate. I don't know. What's your favorite flavor? Oh, it's just plain chocolate. Okay. Man, that's well, it. Even, right? even a starker example, vanilla yeah. and chocolate. Right. So, those kinds of things we should be mindful about when it comes to other stuff too. And heck, like find ways to be involved in your community that aren't about winning. Right. It blows people's minds when I say that, you know, we promote voting, period. Like that we try to get people registered and to vote. Even when we do um, like a voter registration drive, I'll have people of all party affiliations i'll be like hey you registered to vote they're like oh yeah but i'm a whatever assuming that we're not and i'm like right it doesn't i don't care man like you should register Just, to vote right like this is in an ideal world it's 100 percent voting everyone votes and we really know what the people want like that's never going to happen but i think there are ways that we can do this and 
a silly, I don't know if it's silly, an example I think of is Jimmy Carter, who, you know, left office, fairly disliked mm-hmm. for a long time, has been kind of viewed as a failed president. Um, but for most of my life, like, all I know that he's done is built houses for Habitat for Humanity, right? Right. right. And I think all the time that, like, if if Americans were compelled to do nothing else than to show up one day a month to help build houses with their neighbors and you're just like randomly assigned, <laughs> you would have so many more positive relationships with people because you're joined in something that is a task that needs to be done, that is doing good for the world around you. And no one's a, doesn't care what your opinion is about hammers or nails or whatever. Like you're joined in this building a better world for somebody. And right. we can do that in other ways in our community regardless of partisanship. That's That's exactly right. And the goal should be how do we live better with one another, yeah. right? How do we live better with one another? Uh, and our politics should be should arise out of that perspective. Uh, today, that's not the perspective that we have, that we see. It is all about winning. Uh, if you get on social media, it's all about winning. Yeah. Uh, and that's just, that it's not healthy. It's not sustainable, quite frankly. Uh, and, you know, if we could get back to – and so my my beef with or my disagreement with uh, – it used to be just kind of my progressive friends. Now it's this group of conservative friends too is that um, uh, living better together often means you don't need government making a bunch of decisions to help us do that. Mm-hmm. That's not to say – you don't need a government at all. I'm not an anarchist. Uh, and and uh, uh, as a political scientist, I think government's necessary. It's got to do some things. It's got to do some really basic things if we want to be able to live together right. uh, well. Uh, but, uh, but I think sometimes we expect too much from our political systems. We expect too much mm. uh, for them to accomplish that, that government simply is not suited to accomplish. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and, and everything, you know, today, if I get on social media, I, I, it's hard for me to stay on social media for very long yeah. because it's just so negative. Yeah. But it's like, oh, well, we should do this or we should do that. And, well, maybe you should. Maybe that would be good for you to do. But do you really need to coerce everybody else into doing that as well? Right. right? Um, I don't want my child reading that book. That's great. Don't let them read that book. But right. do you really want to compel – Nobody else, everybody else to abide by right. your rule, right? right? Uh, and I think there, there's too many on, on both sides of the spectrum that are willing to use the coercive power of the state to impose their vision of the good life on other people. Right. And I, and I think that's harmful as well. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my four-year-old has some books that my wife and I loathe reading to her, but she loves them. <laughs> and it's like, it's not causing any harm. And we, we're not going to ban the book from our house because she likes it. Um, I... I think you're right, and uh, your note about social media reminded me this week at this conference, I was talking with two colleagues um, who, like me, really got involved in civic engagement world through social media. We all started organizations in mm-hmm. 2016 or 2017. Um, that It was me, and then it was uh, Katie Fahey, who is, uh, runs an organization called The People up in Michigan. She ran the redistricting ballot campaign in 2018 up there called Voters Not Politicians. And then um, uh, Emma, whose last name escapes me right now, but she is one of the co-founders of Mormon Women for Ethical Government, which started around the same time. And we have all had the conversation of um, Emma Adams. That's her last name. Um, But we all had the same conversation that like when we started this on, like we all made Facebook posts at some point and that's like what kicked off a bunch of relationships because – six years ago or eight years ago in 2016 and 2017 social media was more social and there right. was like more of a relational aspect where you could have conversations and build relationships and we all have said like we'll tell you about our what we did but you can't replicate it today in the same way right it's there's very, not yeah there's not the same kind of forum and in fact um uh mormon women for ethical government it just launched a couple of weeks ago basically a social network for their membership because they've been based around Facebook um, and it, they have evolved. And so as Facebook and not necessarily together, like it's not as useful of a tool, it's harder to beat the algorithm and all that kind of stuff. And just harder to cut through the noise of everything else. Even if you have a robust Facebook group or page, the moment someone logs in, 
they don't immediately go to that stuff, right? They got to see all the ads and all the other things and beep, bop, boop, whatever. And they may never even make it to the page they came <laughs> to visit. And so we collectively have to find ways to create new connections in the world. Um, ideally ones, I think, that exist in person, right? Like right. having conversations, um, you know, meeting for coffee or drinks or lunch with one another and building those relationships. And it is harder. It takes more time. But it is so much more rewarding than just like hopping on Twitter and firing off a two-sentence hot take about what the governor just did or sure. whatever. Um, you know. Yeah. I, you know, and it, I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was talking about the lack of meaningful relationships that people have seems like today. Right. Uh, and this one was kind of focused on uh, a little bit, not entirely, but a little bit on uh, especially the problem among men who don't have yeah. good friendships right. and, and, and deep relationships uh, and, and the problem there. And I think that, again, comes back to uh, we we have allowed, uh, in some cases, politics, in some cases, ideology, in some cases, religion or whatever. We've allowed one thing to be the essence of everything. Uh, and those who aren't in that one thing are now, they're not just different, they're they're hostile to us in some way, right? And and so we can't reach out and, and and say, you know what? Even though this person thinks differently, prays to a different god than I do, uh, belongs to a different political party than I do, uh, I think I can still be a friends with them, and I think we can still provide each other, you know, emotional support or uh, or whatever. You know, it seems to be very very challenging yeah. in today's world. And even when it comes to partisanship. Not just, oh, they're a different party and we're still friends. I hear that a lot. I'm like, hey, I've got lots of friends that are Republican, which is in some ways the modern day equivalent. Someone's like, I've got lots of black friends. And you're like, you're, you're trying to make up for something here. But often that it's okay to disagree with people that might share your party affiliation, right? Yeah, like absolutely. there's, and I think you had this in your article too of, you know, to be a Republican and to say some of the Republicans are wrong on these issues, mm -hmm. right? Right. Like I know a lot of people that are people of faith who are Republicans who really don't like um, the amount of religiosity that's being injected into our political system. Yeah, I have uh, a lot of Democratic friends who don't like the um, like the uh, woke purity test mm -hmm. um, when it comes to selecting candidates or to their position on things, and they feel it's off putting. Right, right. Uh, and. In fact, next week, I think in D.C., there's a, a conference called the Principles First Conference or Coalition. Uh, a guy named Heath Mayo is kind of organized, and he's got a bunch of um, high-profile speakers, Adam Kinzinger and folks like that, that have kind of been in that mix of like walking – I'll say walking both sides of the line. That's not always the case. Speaking up for their party and mm -hmm. calling out things they think is, is bad – and in many cases, they've been, you know, effectively excommunicated for doing so. And if if we are, if we are being, uh, if if we are cutting off people with whom we agree on ninety percent of things because we disagree on ten percent, right? Like we are going to hollow out our country. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, and you see this, you know, on the Republican side, you see this with that term rhino. Right. Oh, there. And, and, and today, uh, a rhino just has to be someone who disagrees with you on one thing. And, oh, they must be a rhino. Because, right. Yeah. And uh, or uh, not to be put poke too many bears, but, you know, uh, if, if they disagree with with Donald Trump, right. they're a rhino. Right. 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 Uh, and and I'm looking at some of these folks and I'm like. They've been reliably conservative for a really long time. Right, right. Uh, to call them a rhino doesn't seem to be entirely accurate. But right. I saw uh, Senator Lankford at the airport on Sunday uh -huh. as he was um, presumably getting ready to head back to D.C. And given the last couple of weeks he's had with his immigration bill and really like taking the brunt of his party's dissatisfaction yes. with with their inability to pass some policy, I mean, he put forth a, a policy on immigration that the Democrats would not have even entertained two years ago. And the fact that the Republicans are the ones that lampooned it was, I, he was just getting a cup of coffee and, and looked a little defeated. No, it was early in the morning, maybe to his credit, but I was, um, I wanted to walk over and just be like, Hey man, sorry about your couple of weeks. Like I'm right. sure it's hard. Um, 
but as a good example of like, in what world is James Lankford not like a um, firm core member of the Republican conservative majority here that would should be able to pass policy? Right, right. Um, uh, yeah, that that whole scenario just flabbergasted me I, yeah. as I'm as I'm watching that play out. Uh, and you're exactly right. Uh, that was a, that would have been a conservative win. Yeah, had that passed, yeah. it would have been it would have been some of the strictest enforcement of the border, uh, more uh, funds to border protection and border patrol, all of these kind of things that conservatives have been saying they wanted. Right. Uh, he was selected by leadership in the Senate to negotiate this right. on behalf of the Republicans, and he's just undercut. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, and uh, and whether or not you know. People could say, well, I didn't really think that was a great bill, or that's fine, that's fine, but it just shows the difficulty of getting anything done yeah. in Congress today because we're – and let's let's not play around here. The only reason that didn't happen is because the leading Republican presidential candidate said it will hurt my chances of winning right. in the fall if that passes. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, we can't do that. Right. Never mind that this – the single biggest issue in voters' minds this year is like on the table. Right. Like that's an issue that's bigger than who the president is. And yet this other, this guy came in and undercut the whole thing. Exactly right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's tough. You know, Congress, right. Famously has had a abysmal, uh, favorability rating for Mm -hmm. decades, right. It's down in below 20% for sure. Um, of the number of Americans that approve of the job that Congress is doing. And yet, Members of Congress are reelected at like greater than ninety percent, right? Right. But everyone says Congress is terrible. Oh, but I like my guy. <laughs> uh, and we have to at some point like recognize that this is not always the case. In fact, I have a uh, a friend who was recently went to D.C. for the first time um, with um, a business group in his industry to do some lobbying. And so he, I talked to him after he got back. He was like, mm-hmm. "This is wild." He's like, "I've never he'd never been there before, and it was really cool to go in and." Um, uh, talk to people and one of their first meetings was with Jeff Sessions and they s- said that we want to talk about allowing community banks to accept uh, money from like cannabis industry businesses right which mm-hmm. is right now like mostly prohibited under federal law and I guess Sessions reply was like a very quick and immediate no way because that money comes from drugs those drug dealers use the money to build cartels and the cartels will kill your children mm-hmm. and my friend was just like what like <laughs> how, that was a really quick and like you went in a way different direction than i was even prepared for and he said that was our first meeting and it was jarring and then he realized that all the other meetings they had were similar and that he was like his phrasing was members of Congress didn't even talk to us like people like they, they, you could like see him glaze over and just like repeat mm-hmm. the talking points. The talking points. He's like, yeah. up before that with just chit chat, it was really warm and it was totally normal. And like the normal person until it came to a policy thing and just flipped. And then other guys in the room were all like, oh, I've had the same experience. I went to this town hall meeting for my member of Congress and it all had the similar experience. And they said like, what is it about Congress that like turns these regular folks like into weird partisan robots. And- oh, it, 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 and it's not, trust me, it's not just <laughs> Congress because I've had conversations down at the same state legislature sure. with folks very much the same, right? Yeah. I'm almost convinced there's some entity within the legislature, le- these legislative bodies that says, we're going to teach you to talk like a legislator now. Right. And you're going to communicate in this way. Uh, and you're not going to have kind of the 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 common back and forth. You can't do that anymore. You need to have this and you've got to stick to your points and that right. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's not always helpful. And quite frankly, that kind of communication, I think is one of the things that led to the rise of somebody like Donald Trump because he doesn't talk like that. Right. 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 He right. is completely the opposite of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, not saying that that's good, you know. Sure. The way, but but the fact that he 
uh, flouts all of the traditional political conventions, the fact that he doesn't let himself be constrained by uh, uh, what we what, what traditional politicians seem to be constrained by, I think has worked in his favor as far as amassing a group of people who say, finally, somebody who's just going to say it like it is, right? right? Whether right. or not he actually is or not, that's how they feel. Right. right. No, yeah. You hear that all the time from his supporters that say, like, he just says it how it is. Right. And it was refreshing in some way to not like not toe the party line. Of course, now the way he talks has become the party line, right? Like that, people yeah. have aligned to him. It also makes me wonder, and this is probably being very Pollyanna-ish, but like if he can deviate from that accepted norm so far in one direction, mm-hmm. is it possible for someone to deviate in the other direction that is like to be a, a speaker and to use rhetoric that is more uh, open and loving and mm-hmm. like um, bridge building than it is like tearing down. And I now there's a discussion That's, about love versus sure everything that um, and power. Um, so probably not those pe- those people who are good at that kind of rhetoric tend to get killed. <laughs> Whether it's Jesus or Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> we the other side tends to get mad about that. We. It is a struggle to uh, to communicate in those terms. Oftentimes, you're viewed as weak or right. compromising or uh, something along those terms. Uh, uh, in, in more worse scenarios, you're considered a traitor to whatever side you're supposed to right. be on. Right. Uh, and so, I think in today's environment, it is awfully challenging to 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 speak in those kind of terms, uh, which is unfortunate. I mean, we, we we do that in a lot of other places, right? I can go to a lot of churches and they use that kind of language. I can go to a lot of civic clubs and they use that kind of language of conclusivity and, and hey, we're here as a community to get along. Uh, but it seems like you know, once we translate ourselves from those kinds of perhaps more intimate environments to the environment of politics, all of a sudden it's like, we can't do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and that's a shame. I mean, that, that kind of language should have be, have a place in our politics as well. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, James, I think we're about at our time for today. This has been delightful. Yeah. Oh, thank you. No, this is I have enjoyed this very much. Please come back anytime. We can, I, I you and I almost... talked around a lot of stuff. I imagine our next episode, we'll, we should throw down a couple of policies and actually I, debate them. You know, we probably should talk about things like the minimum wage or school choice or yeah. some stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I suspect there are some issues that we would find we're not really – we don't really disagree on. And we might come up from different ends, but when we get, get to a discussion – there might be a lot of common ground there. Yeah. Uh, uh, other issues, maybe not so much, but that's part of the fun of having conversations. Well, and my commitment um, to you and everybody else is that I do try to approach conversations with uh, you know, a charitable disposition mm-hmm. towards the other and a willingness to change my mind, right? Like the number one indicator of someone will change their mind is their own willingness to be open to changing their mind. So I've tried to foster that curiosity in myself. And, and I appreciate it. I think that we all need to have this kind of humility that uh, I could be wrong. I might not know everything, yeah. and I might not be right about everything yeah. that I think I know. And so uh, if we could all approach things a little bit more that way, we could reduce some of the conflict that's going on, I think. 100%. Well, my guest today has been Professor James Davenport from Rose State College. James, thanks for being here. Thank you. Listeners, that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, thanks for being with us. It is already the middle of February. Session at the state capitol is clicking along. We have not covered a lot of it yet because, you know, in the early days, there's lots of bills that get pressed that are terrible bills. Um, and it is hard to focus on what really matters and what really has some legs. Um, as that becomes more clear as we move along, we will certainly have more coverage of that. As I mentioned earlier, Shannon Fleck will return here hopefully next week um, with some follow-up about that, and we'll um, just keep on keeping on. Also, before you go, I'm going to fade this music out, and then I'm going to play a clip from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart from this Monday. He came back on Monday. I was surprised. I didn't know what was happening, and it was really great. So stick around for just uh, about another minute, and we'll play that clip. The next nine months or so, and maybe more than that, depending on the coup schedule, (laughs) they're going to suck. You're going to be getting emails with insane subject lines like, hello, John, it's Chuck Schumer. (laughs) 
Donald Trump is right behind you with a knife. <laughs> Don't aim. You're going to get inundated with robocalls and push polls and real polls, and people are going to tell you to rock the vote and be the vote and vote the vote and finger bang the vote. And it's all <laughs> going to make you feel like Tuesday, November 5th is the only day that matters. And that day does matter. But man, November 6th ain't nothing to sneeze at or November 7th. If your guy loses, bad things might happen. But the country is not over. And if your guy wins, the country is in no way saved. I've learned one thing over these last nine years. And I was glib at best and probably dismissive at worst about this. The work of making this world resemble one that you would prefer to live in is a lunch pail job day in and day out where thousands of committed, anonymous, smart, and dedicated people bang on closed doors and pick up those that are fallen and grind away on issues till they get a positive result and even then have to stay on to make sure that result holds. So the good news is I'm not saying you don't have to worry about who wins the election. I'm saying you have to worry about every day before it and every day after forever. Although, on the plus side, I am told that at some point, the sun will run out of hydrogen. <laughs> <laughs>